Hi, welcome to 1823 Podcast from Liverpool John Moores University. I'm Stuart Arrowsmith, this is Season 2, Episode 2, and we're celebrating Black History Month. We had terrific role models when I was growing up from the black community who basically shaped me for the person that I am today. Without being able to draw on their stories and their inputs, I would never have achieved what I've achieved so far. We are shaping our narrative. We are telling our story and not having it told for us. We're creating history, her story and their story, and nobody can take that away from us. This is now a community that is here to stay. So they're not transient, they're not just here for some time and then we'll leave. They are seeing themselves as black Germans. 1823 podcast. Well, this episode is all about Black History Month. We're going to hear the stories of some inspirational figures and find out more about a group of people whose lives are the focus of a new exhibition at LJMU this month. First, I've come along to Liverpool Town Hall to meet someone who made history this year by becoming the first ever Black Lord Mayor of Liverpool, someone who's promoted equality and diversity everywhere from Toxteth to the United Nations Conference, and someone who's a good friend to LJMU, uh, Lord Mayor of Liverpool, Councillor Anna Rothery. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure. And thank you for accommodating us at the Town Hall oh, as well. You're welcome. And obviously it's been a, a few weeks now since you took the chains of office, but I imagine the, the pride of being the first citizen of your home city doesn't, doesn't fade as the weeks go by. It doesn't. It actually increases because um, the more people that I meet and the more feedback I have, is, is just amazing. People are just so pleased that the city has done this. Um, and I think it's really the appropriate time for us to have a Black Lord Mayor. You know, I have to agree with what people have said. It's been a long time um, since it should have happened. But, you know, focusing on the positives, we have what we have now and it's how we take it forward and also by the legacy that we leave behind. Do you attach that added significance to it yourself? Obviously, there's a lot of attention from outside that you're the first Black Lord Mayor. Did, did, did you kind of think of that when you accepted the post? I, d- I did. I mean, obviously, it's a, a huge privilege and honour to, to have the position as the first Black Lord Mayor. But it wasn't until I attended a community event and the introduction, really, for me, that's when it hit home, the enormity of the role. And it was very emotional because, you know, it's OK to say the first Black Lord Mayor, but the reality of it is it's a huge um, challenge for me on a personal level because it's about making sure that everything's done in the correct way, that I utilise the time um, to make sure that we maximise what we can do in terms of equality um, across the city as well. And it's also such an important role because there are many young people looking at me and you know, I am literally a role model for so many young people. More importantly, um, I, I'm able to demonstrate just what is possible and so there are many people focused on me at the moment. Mm. And that's it, isn't it? People do need to be able to look to see people from their community taking on positions such as this to feel they can do the same themselves. Precisely. It's a, you know, this is crucial. Um, you know, we've got amazing members of the black community. Unfortunately, we've never had the profile. And this is really important for our young people, for them to understand a sense of self and place. Um, we have to draw on our history in terms of what we've achieved over you know, many, many decades and focus on the positive contributions that we've made to society, not just here in Liverpool, but internationally. And, and this is an opportunity to do that. 
um, during Black History Month, obviously, and also uh, with the role of Lord Mayor of Liverpool. Mm. And when you were growing up in Toxteth, I imagine there would have been a lot of great black role models within your local community, but you perhaps wouldn't have seen any with a, with a significant platform on either a local or national level back then. And that's unfortunately, that's so true, because we had terrific role models when I was growing up from the black community who basically shaped me for the person that I am today. Without being able to draw on their stories and their inputs, I would never have achieved what I've achieved so far. And it is crucial that we look at the contributions made by the elders in the community. And we also, you know, set some store by the contributions that they made because they they were, you know, significant in things like the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, um, you know, the uh, legislation around immigration. You know, they were at pivotal uh, places within history and, and we need to celebrate that and raise the profile of the work that they've done. Mm. And Toxteth is so rich in its diversity. Mm. Obviously, that brings challenges, as, yeah. as we know, from various points in the past. How much of that has shaped your principles and the kind of things that you've campaigned for in your career since then? Well, it, it has completely shaped my principles and my ethos and my own personal values. Um, are drawn from the community that I grew up in. Uh, you know, it was a difficult community to grow up. I was speaking at an event last week and they asked me to talk about the journey that I'd taken. And, you know, the reality about that journey is that it was a beautiful community to grow up in because it was so diverse. And I didn't experience any racism at all until I was 17 years of age, until I went into the workplace. Before that, I lived in a community where there was so much diversity. You know, you, you, you could have 50 languages spoken in the same, you know, square mile mm -hmm. because that's how diverse the community was. And so, you know, to grow up in an environment like that, it wasn't a disadvantage as some people might say. Mm -hmm. um, it was actually an advantage to grow up in such a, you know, diverse and, and you know, just it was just a melting pot of, of every community, every diverse community, every language was spoken. And, um, you know, and it was a very strong community that stood together, mm. regardless of our faith and race and cultural backgrounds. We were all from Liverpool Ace. Mm. Was there any sense of there being a glass ceiling now at that time, that there, there was a certain limit mm. to where you could go as, I mean, not just mm. being black, but being a black woman as well? Well, I often say that, you know, the glass ceiling is something that, is quite alien to the black community. When we talk about ceilings, we talk about concrete ceilings because we don't even see through them. Mm. We, co we couldn't even see what we could aspire to. So when we refer to the glass ceiling syndrome, it's a concrete ceiling. And so it's very difficult to aspire to something when you can't even see what's there. And so, yeah, it was, it, it was a crucial part of growing up in Liverpool Ace because there were no opportunities at all whether it was employment or business or even education. Um, and everything was polarised. It was like, it was, everything was confined within Liverpool 8. Mm -hmm. And nobody used to venture out of that. And, you know, I can understand the comfort of it and the safety in numbers because everybody lived together in the same area. But we also have to be aware of the limitations mm -hmm. that came from that. Have things changed since then? I mean, obviously, there's still more that we want to see, but are you, mm. are you sensing that there is a difference now? I think on par. Um, 
no significant change, really. Okay. Not to the level that we would anticipate. We still struggle with employment, education, um, business, um, for sole traders and small businesses. We still struggle. I mean, I think we're coming into a great period of change, and um, it's been hard fall for mm -hmm. over the decades. But we are coming into a period of change. Now, it's not going to be easy, and it's not going to be overnight. And it's about changing a culture and a psyche that has been embedded in the city for many, many hundreds of years. So it's not going to be something that will be easy to do. But I think with the political drive and will and support and the moral support um, of those who make decisions for the city, which is clearly on board now, we will see some significant changes coming down the road. Mm. Is it ever difficult to kind of reconcile the city's diversity now with Liverpool's own history of its work with the slave trade and supporting the Confederate states? I mean, inevitably, it's going to be difficult because we can't forget the past. And um, we also can't forget that the city was built on the back of enslavement. And everywhere you look in the city and the architecture, it depicts that. And so we'll never forget the fact that the city was part of, uh, of a, you know, a movement that was so inhumane. So we won't forever forget that. But, you know, we have conversations about reparation. And for me, you know, the best reparation that the city could offer is about offering opportunities to our young, diverse community, ensuring that we do everything within our gift to create employment, you know, sell traders, business startups, education. And that's where some of the work with Liverpool John Moores comes into play because they've made a very firm commitment to assist in the city with employment for diverse communities and also employment internally within John Moores, mm. um, you know, in terms of tutors and so on and so forth. So I think the biggest legacy that we could leave behind is to invest in our youth, um, give them a sense of pride and a sense of self and, and make them aware that they are an integral part of this city going forward. Yeah, and I mentioned at the start that you took that message of diversity and equality to the to the UN in right. Geneva. Uh, just tell us a little bit about how that came about. Well, I was asked would I speak um, at the United Nations in Geneva, and um, I agreed, not knowing, fully understanding the enormity of what I was embarking on. So I was asked to speak, and I spoke on religious, linguistic, and ethnic minority differences. And, you know, as you'll appreciate, you literally get five minutes to mm -hmm. speak. It's all being translated into 50 languages as you're speaking. And so you really get five minutes to sort of drive home um, the point you want to make. I didn't realise at the time that I was actually making political history as the first elected member uh, to speak at the UN. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have gone. <laughs> um, but sometimes it's better not to know. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then you've got no constraints or boundaries. But, you know, the most important thing that came from that, prior to that, we weren't a destination city for the working parties from the United Nations. And um, so basically what we had uh, after that was we had the working party for people of African descent who deviated from the usual path to London and stopped off at Liverpool and took evidence from the city about our people of African descent and, you know, some of the limitations that have been imposed and so that fed policy in terms of UN 
And I also believe that it was the precursor for the Poverty Commission and the work that was done when um, they came to Liverpool to look at poverty in the UK. Yeah. And so we kind of opened up a dialogue um, on a level that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to achieve because unless you're there and you make those contacts, those firm contacts, mm. and you make contacts with the chairs of the working party, etc., then, you know, it's a kind of lifelong relationship. And so they can contact you and say, this is something that we're looking at. You know, could you signpost us to some of the organisations or establishments that we may want to take evidence from? Mm. So it has a far-reaching impact. Speaking of impact and, and looking ahead now for the rest of your term in office, obviously there'll be a very tangible benefit of what you do through your charity fundraising right. for, for the different charities, all of which have a, a you know very much an equality and diversity yeah. strand to them. But what about legacy as well? Mm. What do you think your time in, in the office can do for the city and the communities yeah. within it? I think the fact that it's intertwined with the equality agenda and that's, you know, obvious from the charities that I've chosen, which is the Anthony Walker Foundation, Amadudu Women's uh, Refuge, that deals with abused women and children. And then we've also got LCR Pride. And then we've got the uh, Merseyside Somali Association. Um, you know, it, you can't do anything without looking back. You can't put change into play until you can recognise the history that you've had in the city. And so I think that, for me, it's a non-political position, obviously, but my commitment to human rights um, is far-reaching and, and probably informs everything that I do is about, you know, equality and social justice and, um, you know, and the greater benefit. I mean, for many, many years, I used to argue against inequality based on the moral case. Mm. and. Uh, I was, you know, I'd see people's eyes glazing over when I talk to them. And so I thought it's time to take a different tact, a different approach. And so now I always argue uh, for equality on the business case, because this is something that people understand yeah. quite readily. And, you know, and I always argue about, you know, the triple bottom line. What are we doing with the profits that we make? Are we reinvested in society? You know, we do have a, a moral obligation to do more under a duty of care and a duty of equality. And so for me, it's a, it, to be Lord Mayor is just an, another opportunity to spread the word about how important equality is um, for everybody who lives in the city and far wider. And the actual benefits that come from equality. You know, any community that embraces its equality, and Liverpool has got so much to embrace, it's only going to make the city better. This is 1823 Podcast. That's the Lord Mayor of Liverpool, Councillor Anna Rothery. Thanks to her and thanks to the team at Liverpool Town Hall for helping to arrange that interview. Now, we briefly touched there on Liverpool's heritage and the city's role in the slave trade. That's something we've discussed in more detail in a previous episode of the podcast. And I thought it would be useful to revisit that here and just listen again to a minute or two of that conversation for a little bit more background. This is Dr Andrea Livesey, a senior lecturer in history at LJMU. At the beginning of the Atlantic slave trade, so we're talking here, um, well, mainly from the 16th century, it was London and Bristol that dominated the African trade. So it was um, slave ships from London and Bristol that would travel down to Africa, um, trade for African people and um, take them as enslaved people to the Americas. 
However, as we move towards the 1750s, it's Liverpool that begins to dominate the trade. By the close of the legalised Atlantic slave trade in 1807, almost three quarters of the European slave trading voyages, not just British, uh, but European slave trading voyages were leaving from Liverpool. So you can really start to understand how significant a role Liverpool played in the Atlantic slave trade and in the subjugation of African people throughout the Atlantic world. Liverpool grew incredibly rich through the profits of the slave trade. And if you just walk around the city today, you can see that. You can see that around the Albert Docks. You can see that in the financial quarter. You can see that on the town hall, where you have images of African faces, um, you know, a, a hint of where Liverpool gained its wealth. Um, you can see that around the university at Lon in Liverpool, John yes. Laws here, so through the Georgian quarter in the old merchants' houses. There's incredible welfare. But while Liverpool was growing rich, very few enslaved people themselves came to Liverpool. Um, the early African settlers in Liverpool generally came here as free people, as sailors on ships, and they would settle mm. in the city and um, marry either local white women or Irish women that had come here in the same period. And this is what's made up that very special racial character, shall we say, of areas of Liverpool like Toxteth with yes. historic black communities. And because it was um, a, th these were marriages between um, free white and free black working class people, we get this quite special um, interracial working class um, racial identity that carried through really to the 20th century. That's Dr Andrea Livesey and you can listen to that conversation in its entirety by going back to season one episode three of the podcast. This is 1823 podcast. Now I recently had the pleasure of sitting down to chat to another inspirational figure who campaigns tirelessly for equality. Phil Apoku-Jimmer, better known as Lady Phil, is the executive director and co-founder of UK Black Pride, an annual event which launched in 2005 and this summer drew a crowd of more than 10,000 people. Phil visited Liverpool John Moores University earlier this year to give a keynote speech on campaigning for inclusion, equality, freedom and justice. I caught up with her and started by asking how UK Black Pride came about. UK Black Pride came out, it was born out of a frustration and this frustration was about not seeing ourselves in wider mainstream LGBT plus activities. So I was a volunteer for an organisation called Block, which is black lesbians in the UK and we were very much online and had like dialogue just, you know, about terminology, language, you know, seeing ourselves online and that visibility but online. So I decided with um, another person, how about we take this offline? And that's when we decided to go to South End with two busloads of, you know, queer women of colour um, heading to South End. Everyone says, why South End? Because when I was younger, my father could only afford to take us to Broadstairs, South End, Margate, and that was my holiday. So, you know, we took these women down to South End and we had this real great moment of just seeing ourselves 
being in a space where we've got such a shared commonality, being in a place where we understand each other's struggles and being in a space where we don't normally see this level of representation through media, through TV, through LGBT activities. So as I was walking back to the coach, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm completely overwhelmed. I said, this really feels like the start of a Black Pride activity um, within the UK. And somebody that was behind me said, oh, Phil, you're crazy. You're going to get yourself killed. You're not going to have a Black Pride in this country. And I said, now you've said that we're not going to watch this space. And it then grew from there. Do you see UK Black Pride as a celebration? Is it a political statement? Is it a protest? Is it all of those things? Oh, it's all. You know, prides should be and are political. My very existence and being is political. As a as a black woman whose parents are from Ghana, I'm African, you've you know, we're in Liverpool and you've only got to look at the history of Liverpool, the slave trade, the enslavement. So my being is political. So when you take a stand and you make yourself seen, heard and visible 365 days of the year or even just on that one day at a Pride, not even necessarily Black Pride, you're making a statement. You're letting people know that actually, you know, my being is important and I should be valued and respected. That's a political statement within itself. Um, It is also a celebration. It's a time where we come together in unity and in harmony and in love just to you know say I'm amongst people that know my struggle but we're going to celebrate we're going to dance we're going to protest we're going to laugh eat drink and you know sit down and watch other people dance you know we're going to flirt whatever you know whatever takes somebody's fancy yeah you touched on this earlier but what were the kind of emotions that you went through with the first pride event and then how has that developed in the what 14 years since then when you put the events on now Wow. So I think there's never been a year which has been easy just to say, that's it, we're going to put on a pride. We know the challenges of organising any event will always be difficult in certain parts. But the emotion that I think I felt after 2005 was one of, my gosh, we have just created space for us to be centred we are shaping our narrative we are telling our story and not having it told for us we're creating history her story and their story and nobody can take that away from us so it was yes overwhelming it was positive it was also the reflection probably a couple of weeks after that 2005 event was more about how do we sustain this how do we make sure we are really dealing with inclusion? Because it started from a group of women of color who are queer. And there are different challenges for, when we use the word black, for Asian women, South Asian women, South Asian men. There are different challenges for black men who are Caribbean, 
in the context of looking at not just Caribbean, African, looking at HIV and AIDS. There are different challenges for black women, even looking at health and reproduction and, you know, how they're seen in the workplace, the aggressive tone and nature that some may say I have when I'm just being assertive. So there were, there's so many different nuances to it. And we could see the potential for us to get huge and have lots of events all over the place but it comes down to funding and resources and time in order to invest and when you've only got a small pool of volunteers nobody is paid and even today nobody is paid as a volunteer to make UK Black Pride work you kind of take that step back deep sigh and think you know oh how is that going to happen? Yeah. But 14 years on, and we've gone from having, what, 200 people in one space to now 7,500 people. You know, that's almost, you know, 700%. You know, it's grown. And it's, and it's amazing. And it's diverse. It's inclusive, and we're also still learning about what we need to do, but we're speaking to our community, we're asking how can we make this better, we're trying to centre different subjects and different people's concerns at the same time. You know, when we're going through a climate of absolute horrific, you know, transphobia against our trans siblings, we have to think about how do we react proactively to it as opposed to just jumping in and starting a big old war when actually are we the best people to speak so as a, as a person who's not trans i have to go and seek advice and counsel from somebody who is a trans person of color to be able to ensure that those voices are heard so constantly learning constantly growing you know not always getting things right but you know that's the way you grow and do you detect changes in attitudes towards this community as the as the years have gone by? Um, clearly, there are still challenges there, yeah. but do you feel things are getting better? I, in terms of trans, I think that things may be getting better, maybe for some, but not all. And you know, I go back to the point of when you look at something from an intersectional lens you might find that those barriers of oppression for black trans people will be very different to maybe a white trans person. I, I, I don't want to create this sort of oppression, sort of hierarchy, because there isn't that. But there are different factors that mean some people can navigate through life differently to others. Mm -hmm and it may come down to the powers and the privilege that you have, the access that you've had to education um, and where you stand in society. When I was preparing for this chat, I was reading something that you'd written last year and there was a term that really jumped out at me, which was microaggression. Oh. I was just really interested in that and I just wondered if you could just kind of unpick that for us. Yeah, so that must have been the open letter to queer people of colour. So microaggressions is something that, and I can speak for myself, that I deal with on a daily basis. Whether that's 
in the workplace and how somebody treats you, speaks to you, those subtle forms of racism that, gosh, you're so aggressive, or you're placed into a particular box or space, or even down to getting on the tube and you know that nobody really wants to sit next to you. And again, it could be very different for, you know, our siblings, uh, our sisters that wear a hijab, you know, people that people looking every single day and picking out, picking out, hiving off and breaking down. That form of aggression in a micro level is so much to take on board. And when it happens constantly, you can burn out, you can break down. And you know, this is why I use the term busy being black. Just being busy being black means getting on the train to come to Liverpool. And I know that I was looked at in a way that that person had some form of suspicion. How do you prove it? Sometimes you can't, you just know that because it's your lived experience and because there's a sort of natural distrust around black people, um, and I'm not saying by all, but if I know what racism feels like and I'm telling you that's what it feels like, then I have to be believed Mm -hmm. because that's my daily lived experience of all of that microaggressions towards me that are built up the judging, the constant, you know, eye rolling or peering from the sides of the eye that, oh, look at her, you know, it could be somebody who has physical disabilities and, you know, every single day that they get up and get on the train or go to work, someone will look at them, children might be like, oh, mum, oh, look at that, why is his head like that, or why is her leg like that, or why do they look... You know, so those forms of microaggressions are aggressions towards people, but in a micro level. So people have become, oh gosh, we've got to be politically correct. So they find other ways of belittling, demeaning, you know, really being negative and still throwing aggression towards people's difference, but in a way that actually the person who's receiving those aggressions is built up so many microaggressions thrown at them that where do they start? What's your mission and and how will you know if you've achieved it? So that's a huge question, wow. I think the mission has got to be about equality for all. Eradicate racism, sexism, misogyny, you know, discrimination against disabled people, young people having their voice and us knowing that that is the next generation. Women not having to use the word time's up or me too. That is the bigger, broader mission and making sure that we have a society where we can all live in a place that we have equal standing. Will that happen in my lifetime? I think not, but you know, if if the work that we do continues to sort of fertilize the ground that allows our next generation to keep on plowing away, then that mission can be achieved as people pass down the baton. If you look at 1957 in, in America, Little Rock, 
that was the first time a black child went into a school where which had been segregated now 1957 wasn't long ago so changes have been made and we've achieved lots you know that age-old saying there's still so much to do and I think that I I would just love to see a world where I don't have to talk about being a black queer woman who is facing many challenges I want my existence and my being to be usualized so that I see myself in everyday life I want to see black women, women of colour, you know, at the highest levels of structures and not have a Guinness effect, which is just maybe senior white leaders at the top and, you know, black and brown workers still ploughing away. I want to see a place where my daughter feels that actually she can exist without challenge to her existence. You're listening to 1823 Podcast. This year, as every year, there's been a wide range of events and celebrations across the UK to mark Black History Month. One event that caught my eye was an exhibition held here at LJMU on Black Germany. It tells the stories of black people in Germany from the late 19th century through to the end of the Second World War and their experiences during a turbulent period in that country. A really fascinating exhibition. And to tell us more, I'm joined by Dr. Andre Kyle, a senior lecturer in modern European history here at LJMU. Hi, Andre. Hello, hi there. Yeah, good, thank you, and thanks for for having us here. Um, The story of black Germany, as told through the exhibition and then the the broader themes of identity in Germany, they're very interesting, very troubling as well. If we go back to the very beginning, this all stems from Germany's period as an empire and and its colonies. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So, um, like many other European countries, in the late 19th century, Germany began to acquire a colonial empire in Africa, starting around 1884, um, and then moving on um, to um, the end of the First World War, when, as a result of the First World War, Germany lost most of its colonies. And um, you're absolutely right, this also meant uh, intensified contacts between Africa and Germany. Um, In the first instance, this meant that local elites um, from the uh, colonies for instance, were sent to Germany for education, but it's also meant, for instance, um, 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 travellers from Africa, um, sailors um, to a degree, also merchants, workers uh, coming from Africa to Germany. And this is really the beginning, if you like, of a community in Germany itself. There were black people present in what was then becoming Germany before, um, the 1880s, but as a, as a noticeable community that was also noticeable um, as a larger group within German society, the 1880s is really the time when this all begins. Yeah, and what would attitudes have been like towards black people in Germany at that time? I think it's sometimes very hard to pin it down. Um, we have to acknowledge that European societies, not just German society, but European societies were to a degree um, um, influenced by racist thought and by ideas of, if you like, um, racial hierarchies. Um, and black people within these racial hierarchies were usually placed um, very low. So there was a certain racist attitude towards black people in general. However, the uh, picture gets much more complex and complicated when you look at 
the actual interactions between um, the black newcomers, if you like, and the German mainstream population. Very often, those black people would arrive in the big port cities, for instance, in Hamburg, which is like the gateway of Germany to the world, and then would also settle in bigger cities like Berlin. And these cities tended to be much more cosmopolitan, more liberal and mm -hmm. more open. So you also find actually quite interesting um, levels of interaction uh, between um, black people and the mainstream German population. And very often um, black people, black Germans, um, would integrate very well into their local communities. There would be intermarriage. Um, so you would also quite early on, around 1900, have the beginnings of black German families. Um, and those who settled in Germany tended to be rather well integrated. Yeah, and there were moves early in the 20th century to try and secure better rights for black people in mm -hmm. Germany and in the colonies as well. Yeah, that's absolutely right. This is primarily the result of um, the First World War. So when the First World War ends in November 1918 and then as a result of the peace conference at Versailles, Germany loses its colonies. And up until this point, um, the um, people living in the German colonies would have had the uh, status of colonial subjects. They wouldn't have full civil rights. Um, um, there is um, a man called Martin de Bobe, um, who um, was in Berlin already um, before the First World War, who founded a family, who um, was working actually as, as the first black tube driver on um, Berlin's underground, the mm -hmm. U-Bahn. Um, and the interesting thing is the Bobe and other black Germans um, set up a petition. And in this petition, they um, are basically addressing the German state, the new Weimar Republic, but also the allied powers that are taking over the German colonies. And basically say, right, actually the best thing for the former colonies would be if they would remain in some way connected to Germany, but only if Germany would guarantee equal rights, um, equal civil liberties, um, to those inhabitants of the colonies, but also to black people in Germany. So they were asking for um, um, legal and social equality. And at the same time, Germany would have been asked to invest in developing these colonies to bring them up to a level that would allow them to become independent countries. Um, so this was the so-called De Bobe Petition of 1919 that was directed to the National Assembly that was convening in Weimar, but also to the colonial powers. Um, and it's the first expression um, that I'm aware of, of um, what we would probably call a civil rights movement mm. of black Germans at this time. Um, the problem with this petition was um, that it came to no fruition, unfortunately. Mm. So it was brushed off by the German government, who didn't have any interest in, in investing much in this kind of colonial empire that they have lost. Um, but at the same time, the colonial powers, France and Britain, also had very little interest in kind of granting these civil liberties because they were afraid that if they would make the example of the former German colonies, then obviously other colonies um, in Africa but also in other parts of the colonial empires would be asking for exactly yes. the same rights. So it is an expression of um, political self-consciousness. It's an expression of a, a growing idea um, of political equality. But unfortunately, at this point in time, it came to absolutely no fruition. Mm. Um, one of the interesting things for diversity in Germany comes about through losing the colonies because the French placed some of their African colonial uh, troops in Germany after the First World War. 
Some of them have relationships with German women and we get, what, several hundred mixed-race children born to French colonial troops and, and German women. Um, what were their experiences like in the 20s and beyond? They had very problematic experiences. You're absolutely right. So in 1923, um, the French but also British and Belgian troops occupied the Rhineland because the um, Allies uh, accused Germany of not fulfilling its obligation under the Versailles Treaties. Mm -hmm. And in order to secure, uh, to secure payments from Germany, they send in troops. And on the part of uh, France, but also of Belgium, and they deliberately use uh, colonial troops, primarily from Senegal. So they send in colonial troops, black men, black soldiers, as occupation troops. And on the part of the French, and you have to imagine this is all part of, of this kind of a bit of this, this kind of racist concept of uh, what it means to be black and black in Europe, um, also on the part of the French, this is deliberately designed to humiliate the Germans. Right. Um, during this occupation period, which lasts uh, two years from 1923 to 1925, um, a lot of local Germans, and particularly German women, have relationships with the occupation troops. Out of these relationships, um, roughly uh, six to 800 children are born. They're mixed race, However, and this is becoming a huge issue for them, um, they are soon depicted primarily by the right-wing press as so-called Rhineland bastards, which is deliberately used to, to basically, as a derogatory term, um, to, to mark them as different, mm. um, which plays into this idea of, 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 of racial, racial purity, yes. of whiteness, and this is seen as a stain, if you like, and as a reminder of the occupation. Now, um, these children in the Weimar Republic certainly um, face, if you like, everyday discrimination. Not necessarily from the side of the state, even though the Weimar authorities are already very uneasy with the presence of these mixed-race children. But life gets particularly difficult and uh, cruel for them once the Nazis come to power mm. in 1933. Um, so the Nazis uh, enact a series of laws in 1934 and 1935 um, that then become known as the Nuremberg Race Laws. Initially, these laws are designed to discriminate against the German Jewish population, stripping them of civil liberties, stripping them of uh, careers, etc. However, and now it gets very complicated, the uh, German Ministry uh, of the Interior, and primarily uh, its head, Wilhelm Frick, explicitly um, put in a section that um, the Nuremberg race laws do not only apply to Jews, but also to black people. And this places um, the black people who are there anyway, already since the um, you know, early 1900s, but also the children of um, and the Rhineland, the Rhineland children, into a very difficult position because they are now defined by the race laws as non-Aryans. Mm. And this provides the foundation and later on for discrimination. For instance, just like the Jews are discriminated against, it means that a lot of black Germans um, lose their jobs, lose their careers. So they're pushed out of occupations that are now reserved for Aryans. This is the public service, for instance, but also certain areas of business. The second problem is that um, children, for instance, are now pushed out of education. So it's an absolute program of racial discrimination that first and foremost is designed to exclude the German Jews from the public, but which is also used against the black Germans and their descendants. The second thing is um, Frick is obsessed with uh, racial purity. And 
the Rhineland children represent this kind of uh, a problem for him because um, they're a mixed race, they're German and African, Senegalese in many cases. And Frick designs a program with the help of um, race, race scientists, like for instance the uh, anatomy professor Eugen Fischer, and they design a program of sterilization, of forced sterilization. So from 1935 onwards, Frick and Fischer and um, other institutions, for instance, members of the SS, are basically arresting um, these Rhineland children, mm. and at least 400 of them are forcefully sterilized. And this is a very brutal process. Um, so these children are arrested. Um, many of them are born in 1925, 26, so they're very young. Most of them would be under the age of 10. Um, and this is a very, uh, a very uh, a, a, a dark chapter mm. in the history of black Germans. Later on, um, during the Second World War, um, there are also increasing attempts to uh, prosecute um, black Germans. So, for instance, in 1942, the head of the SS, Heinrich Himmler, um, gives out an order um, for the registration of all black people under German occupation. Now, this order, it's in late 1942, so the war's already turning against mm. Germany. But you can imagine um, what the intention of this order yes. might have been, for instance, if the Germans would have won the Second World War. So yes. there's seriously a trajectory um, towards the intent of genocide yes. um, there. Um, so that, that just goes to show that from very early on, uh, exclusion, discrimination is then stepped up step by step and goes to actual prosecution. And although, and that makes the story even more complicated, there is very little evidence for actual um, violent prosecution. The exhibition takes us up to the end of the Second World War, but of course the question of German identity has rumbled on through the decades since then, and it's only really relatively recently that they've kind of redefined the question of who is a German. Mm -hmm. no, you're absolutely right. The real push to the formation of, of, of a German-African or, or, or Afro-German community is really coming in the 60s, 70s, and 1980s. There's increasingly also um, an awareness that this is now a community that is here to stay. So they're not transient, they're not just here for some time and then we'll leave. They are seeing themselves as black Germans. This became a real challenge then for German mainstream society um, to think about what does make someone German. And that was then also underpinned in the late 1990s by changes to the citizenship law. That essentially got rid of this idea you need to have German ancestors in one way or the other to get German citizenship. And instead, what became much more important is how long you lived in the country, how well integrated you were, and whether you would want to stay in this country and make it your home. So there was a liberalization in terms of laws as well. And I think this certainly has contributed um, uh, two ways, because A, it gave uh, migrants, not just black migrants, but German migrants, a path into legally into becoming German um, in terms of passport. But it also, the debates around this new citizenship law also, I think, brought out um, uh, uh, much more liberal ideas um, uh, uh, amongst the mainstream population um, that, that basically then accepted that German doesn't just mean a certain idea of how you have to look like, but it's much more um, what you're up to, in a sense. And um, I think that's um, a long struggle. It's a long history. It's probably at least 100 years. Um, that the struggle about what it means to be German was fought over, and at least it's a milestone in this development. 
Thanks, Andre. It's really interesting, and the, the exhibition was fascinating as well. A really, hear, yeah. yeah, really well-told story that perhaps we don't hear enough about. Thanks, Andre. Thanks for telling that story. That's Dr. Andre Kyle. 1823 Podcast. Okay, thank you to each of my guests for their time on this episode, marking Black History Month. And thanks to you for listening in. Make sure you've subscribed to the podcast to get our new episodes as we release them. If you like it, please rate and review us. This episode was produced by Michael Humphreys. Our editor is Ben Jones. And listen out for our next new episode coming soon. 1823 Podcast.